The Energy Gang is brought to you by Vertzilla Energy, leading the transition toward a 100% renewable future. In 2018, Vertzilla established the Path to 100 community to bring together thought leaders and industry experts with a goal, discover solutions, raise awareness, and start a dialogue on how to achieve a 100% decarbonized electric system. Visit pathto100.org to become part of the discussion. We're also brought to you by Honeywell, a leading supplier of IoT solutions for mission-critical industries around the world. Honeywell Smart Energy helps utilities transform their grid operations through advanced solutions and targeted services from edge to cloud. Their electricity, gas, and water solutions go beyond tomorrow's horizons, putting valuable, actionable data in the hands of utilities to better serve their customers. You can learn more at smartenergy.honeywell.com. Green Tech Media Podcasts. From Green Tech Media, this is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome to the show. This week, the future of the planet depends on the mail. The mail-in votes are still being counted, but it's increasingly likely that Joe Biden will become America's next president. So as of this recording on Thursday morning, Biden's path to the presidency looks much better than Trump's. He is very close to locking in the Electoral College. It could be Thursday night or even Friday when we get calls for Georgia, Pennsylvania, Nevada, and North Carolina. Heck, things could change dramatically in the hours between recording and posting this episode. So we do not have an official result, and people are being cautious in how they make these calls. But the direction feels clearer And we do have plenty of local results as well. Meanwhile, America is officially out of the Paris Climate Accord. So what happens next? In this episode, we're just going to cover a smattering of stories coming out of the election. Things are still pretty fluid out there, so we'll be fluid as well. Plus, we'll answer a bunch of listener questions. Catherine Hamilton is here. She's the co-founder of 38 North Solutions. She's in Arlington, Virginia. Hi, Catherine. Hello. How are you doing today? Uh, Doing well. Um, You spent election night in the hospital with a flask yes i did a flask of what (laughs) it it was chardonnay which (laughs) sounds sounds kind of funny in a flask but uh but it it was fine jigger shaw is the president and co-founder of generate capital he's with us from bethesda maryland jigger how are you well super super ecstatic now that cocaine is legal in oregon (laughs) Are you going to carry a flask of cocaine around with oh you? Oh, my Lord. <laughs> I, I never understood that that was even on the ballot until after I read about it. Yeah. I mean, America's electoral results are often very confusing, but there's one thing for sure. We are on a steady march toward legalizing drugs. And just in time, we need them all to get through this week. <laughs> So we're just going to have a conversation here about the national picture and a lot of the local races and then what happens on the international stage uh, with the Paris Climate Agreement. So let's start first with the presidential race and the congressional outcome, and then maybe we'll game out some scenarios based on listener feedback. Catherine, where do things stand with the race right now as of Thursday morning? Yeah, so as you mentioned at the top of the show, there are a few states that we're still waiting for all of the ballots to be counted. And I think it's really important for people to be patient. Remember, 2020 is the year that time stood still. And 
things just move at a different cadence than they did any other year. So we have to just wait for all the votes to be counted. And I know that even our current president is not interested in waiting much longer. But I think that will give us the final answer. And I also think that, you know, it would have felt a lot different on election night if all of the results had come in at once. It would have felt much more like a big Biden win. And I just think because of the way everything, the process is moving now, it just doesn't feel that way. But I think there's a lot of hope out there because, um, you know, people have decided that they want something different. Um, A lot more people came out and voted. People were very energized. And I would say people on both sides were energized. And that's not a bad thing for the country for everybody to get out and vote. So people don't listen to this podcast for our elections commentary. There's a lot of elections podcasts out there. But Jigger, just give us an understanding of why Biden's pathway looks so good and why everyone's so hopeful? Well, I just wanted to echo what Catherine said, which is that um, we knew going into 2020 that we'd have a record number of mail-in ballots, that a lot of states' legislatures did not allow them to start counting those ballots until election day or night, um, that we were going to have a lot of absentee ballots, which are a little bit different than mail-in ballots, and that there was going to be this mirage effect Right. And I think there's a lot of people who basically have convinced themselves that because Biden didn't win convincingly in all 50 states, um, that this was not a landslide. But I think after the votes are counted, Biden will have had the largest uh, vote margin since Reagan in 1980. And, um, and it's, it's going to be really a, a large uh, win, right? Like, I think that he'll probably end up with 300 plus electoral votes. And so I think we're in a weird situation where, like, the delayed gratification is making everyone just feel depressed. When in fact, I think all the efforts that people expended to get to this point were worth it. And I think Biden's going to end up with 7 million more votes than Trump. And, you know, just, um, it, it's it's a pretty amazing uh, result. Okay, so an assumed Democratic president, a Republican Senate, Democrats drastically underperformed expectations in congressional races uh, in the House and the Senate, the perfect recipe for doing nothing legislatively, or at least nothing bold. True, Catherine? Yes. um, Certainly, Mitch McConnell, if he is the majority leader, again, is not going to allow any big massive climate legislation to go through. I still think there's some amazing opportunities to get things done, whether that's through just appropriations funding that we have to do every year. And we've done pretty well with that, regardless of the Senate or doing infrastructure. I mean, his his members are going to need to take home something at some point. So I think there is possibility to do some real infrastructure work. Jigger, I checked the stock market. First solar stock was down over eight and a half percent. Sun power fell nearly three percent. Plug power slipped two percent. This is a tally coming from MSNBC. A lot of these stocks had a major run up into the election because there was this assumption that Biden had this huge lead and that potentially Democrats would take the Senate and you'd get this sweeping climate agenda that would look something like the Green New Deal. And that bubble has burst, even with Biden at the helm in the White House. Um, What do these stock prices in the renewable energy sector tell us about expectations? 
<laughs> Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> it just tells you that the stock market doesn't know what the hell it's doing. I Look, I think that if Biden becomes president, then he will be able to remove all the solar tariffs, right? So, I mean, all the you know, sort of emergency tariffs that Trump put on electric vehicles and solar panels and all that stuff he'll be able to remove. So I think that's a positive. Separately, I think to Catherine's point, um, um, the one thing I would say is that during these four years, Trump was personally involved with killing renewable energy uh, support, right? So in the COVID bill in April and May, right, um, my sources on the Hill basically said, Trump directly told McConnell not to pass any extensions of the ITC, PTC, all that stuff. So like, so I don't think McConnell is against tax credits. I think he's fine with them. I think it's Trump that was against it. So if we lose Trump, but have McConnell, I think there's actually a lot of interest from his caucus to to put in place um, incentives. You know, it, it, we may not get an extension of the ITC, which is, I think, what maybe some people thought we might have gotten from a larger Democratic majority in the Senate. But I do think we'll get like direct pay, which is, you know, sort of allowing people to uh, cash the tax credits in at 85 cents on the dollars. So it's not preferable. It's just a good backstop. So a stimulus, like let's assume we now have more momentum for another stimulus. Joe Biden has clearly shown his preference for putting a lot of infrastructure and potentially green infrastructure into that stimulus. Um, although we have maybe less democratic strength in Congress than we assumed, what does having Joe Biden in the White House do to those negotiations, Catherine? Like, how could he potentially influence a another stimulus that has some of these elements that deal with climate change or clean energy? Yeah, so I think it could go a couple different ways. You know, Biden does have really good relationships with people on both sides of the aisle. And so he's in a better negotiating position than Obama was going in. But again, he was also one of the key negotiators on the stimulus bill back in 2009. Um, and I, I don't think McConnell is going to have a big open checkbook the way he did for the CARES Act. Um, but I think there is some room for negotiation and some creative thinking on how we would get this done. And it may not seem like a big overt climate bill, but I think we will get something uh, that will help the economy. We have to have something that helps the economy. And the one of the key ways to help the economy is through clean energy um, and clean infrastructure. On the other hand, I also think that Biden can do a lot administratively to move us forward um, without Congress. And I think that's something we're gonna have to really focus on if we have this divided Congress. Should we game out some scenarios sent in by our listeners? I think this this opens up the possibility to talk about what he could do from day one. Unleash the mob. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, uh, so David Savage asks, what climate related things can should be on his desk for day one for signature? Um, any thoughts? I mean, we talked about the stimulus that will have a lot in it, potentially. Anything else? Yeah, I mean, Paris is going to be the first thing. He's going to just get us back in. Now, we'll talk about that in a little bit about what that actually means. But there are a bunch of things that he can simply not defend some of the cases that Trump has taken to the courts. 
this uh, replacement for the clean power plan, which is called ACE, which I call all coal energy. I don't know that that's what it stands for, but certainly the Biden administration will not defend that. It's an EPA rule. Um, they'll be able to put cafe standards back into effect, appliance standards, all of those things that the federal government can lead on. And then remember, the federal government has a vast amount of lands. So lands where he can not develop fossil fuels and instead develop renewables. The federal building sector is enormous. So whether it's through the General Services Administration or DOE's FEMP program, the Federal Energy Management Program, there's a lot you can do on federal leadership. There's still a lot of funding authority and authority to do energy savings performance contracts, for example. So there is a ton he can do on the federal side. You know, and that is not even to mention all of the diplomacy he can do, which we can talk about later. And the one thing that will be unique about a Biden administration is that the people who are working there really understand the ins and outs of those agencies and how you can get stuff like that done. Whereas in the Trump administration, you brought in a lot of people who, A, their mission was to dismantle those agencies and B, many of them just like had no idea what those agencies did. So you have a lot of potential competence in executing that stuff. Definitely. And I would add FERC to the list. I think there's a lot you can do with FERC that will that could really change markets. Yeah, let's talk about that. So Adam Browning of Vote Solar asks, what's the FERC out of the box wish list? And we had a few other listeners echo that. Um, so first of all, does the president appoint FERC commissioners or does the Senate? Sounds like the president has authority and the Senate just does it in practice. So what would Biden's role be in bringing in new commissioners and what in theory should be on the docket at FERC. So the president could do this in consultation, but certainly the majority minority leaders of the Senate put forward those nominees. But the president, whoever, whatever the party is in power in the White House, has three of the five commissioner slots. So it would shift so that you would have three Democrats and two Republicans. And I assume they're going to be doing this in very close consultation with a minority leader, Schumer, in making sure that you get really good people. Um, and certainly Mitch McConnell has come up with some folks, too. Um, you know, Neil Chatterjee it was McConnell's staffer. So, uh, you know, he's been pretty good over there. Um, I think once you get a full slate of five commissioners, there are a bunch of things you can do. I don't work on gas pipelines, but the gas pipeline issue is going to be huge. So there will be a big impact on that. But when you look at all of the rulemakings that have happened, a lot of them have been pretty positive. The one that everyone has held up as bad has been the MOPR, remember, which is the minimum offer price floor, which is really about how do you count or discount state subsidies. And I think rather than pulling back on that, you can have a real conversation about subsidies and talk about what are subsidies to the fossil fuel industry and how do we discount those? How do we make sure that we internalize what are considered externalities, all the social cost of carbon, and making sure that is all included in just and reasonable rates that FERC would set so or approve? So I think there is a lot that FERC could do. And Rich Glick, I would imagine would be an incredible chair. He has built an enormous understanding of all of these different rulemakings. He's had a lot to say about them. And I think he could help guide the direction of uh, FERC under a Biden administration. Jigger, what about you? Do you have a FERC wish list? My FERC wish list is Catherine's FERC wish list. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine speaks for us all on all things regulatory. I do. I do hope that they do a lot more in transmission, which is where yeah. I think they can 
set up utility companies to actually make uh, money on utilizing the unused portion of transmission capacity right now. Absolutely. Let's turn quickly to an issue that you mentioned earlier, Jigger, which is Chinese tariffs on solar goods. Ray Hohenstein asks, will tariffs on Chinese imports be reversed? And what will be Biden administration's overall approach to trade relations with China? That's a much bigger question. But start first with the solar tariffs. Yeah, I mean, I do think that, you know, where solar projects are now, um, the solar panel is now less than 20% of the cost of most systems. Uh, and so 80% of the systems are really, you know, locally sourced. And so, um, I mean, I do think that removing those tariffs will help to bring the United States in line with global price reductions. And, you know, I think that's pretty important. But the other piece of it um, is on electric vehicles, right? Remember, the the Chinese uh, government and the Chinese industry are the largest producers of electric buses in the world, right? And and unfortunately, U.S. Uh, manufacturers have been slow to ramp. And so you see tremendous decarbonization of transit buses in Colombia, Brazil, Chile, other places that don't have these tariffs. But the United States, it's like super slow because we haven't been able to ramp our own local production. But, you know, the global transit bus market continues to march on. So it'll be good to see America catch up in some of those areas. And then I would say the other part where I think uh, Biden can be helpful is actually figuring out what to do on industrial policy in the United States, right? When you think about what a lot of this sort of white rage against the Democrats comes from is from, you know, promises that Bill Clinton made back in 1993 when a lot of these plants were decimated. And, you know, Biden remembers a lot of those promises. I mean, Trump made a lot of promises but didn't keep them in 2016. But it'd be nice to figure out what we're going to manufacture here in the United States and how we're going to support those industries. Yeah, I totally agree, Jigger, with that. And I think that is something else that we could do with the divided Congress is get some good manufacturing policy in place. Rebecca Pearl Martinez asks, would the first woman of color VP mean that similar voices emerge in sectors such as energy where they're underrepresented? Despite her general campaigning on women's leadership, Hillary's energy strategy did not prioritize it. What do we know about how Biden would bring in people of color and focus on environmental justice? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think in general, it ties a little bit to the conversation we had uh, in the last episode about New Jersey's new law. I think that, you know, if you're just doing it through executive action, my sense is it's going to be ham-handed because the NEPA process, which is the, you know, sort of environmental protection sort of review, um, is broken. And everyone knows it's broken. Environmental groups may not admit that it's broken, but everyone else knows that it's broken. And the U.S. Congress wants to figure out how to um, resolve it so that, uh, people who are investing billions of dollars into new infrastructure can have more certainty on how they get through the NEPA process. And my sense is the right way to do environmental justice is going to be through that process, through Congress, and not through executive action. But, um, you know, certainly they can do some things on the margin. Yeah. And I think that you know, Biden was very intentional in his choice of Kamala Harris as vice president. And I think you're going to see that throughout all of his nominations and appointments in the administration. And if you have people of color and women and people of differing types of backgrounds and socioeconomic you know, 
um, histories, I think you're going to see much more attention and spotlight focused. And you're just bringing different perspectives in to look at all of these issues um, with environmental justice in mind. Steve Kohler asks, what effect, if any, did Biden's stances on fracking, oil subsidy phase outs and net zero emissions by 2050 have on the election, particularly in key swing states? So we don't know in Pennsylvania, which is a key state. I will say that I've seen lots of exit polling showing that the vast majority of voters say that they care about climate change and that Biden had a better climate plan. And even Fox News was showing some of this exit polling on election night, showing that uh, a large majority of voters put climate change as a top issue. So I don't think that necessarily answers Steve's question, but we can generally say that this is an issue that has risen up the priority list among voters across the spectrum. With that said, I don't really think that these issues are influencing people at the ballot box, particularly in an election like this, where you are like most people are just going to the polls to vote against Trump. I don't think many people are galvanized to vote for a specific issue. The The, the driving force for most voters is just get Trump out of office. Uh, those who are voting for Biden, obviously. So uh, we don't really know the nuances of this yet, but clearly the exit polling shows that climate is further up the list for voters across the spectrum than it ever has been. Yeah, the polling has remained ridiculously constant this whole year. I mean, with 200,000 Americans dying of COVID, from with, you know, like um, the whole military ad piece that Biden put out around um, Trump's treatment of the military, right? None of those things really changed the trajectory of the race and shifted people. So um, I can't imagine that the oil comment shifted people at all either. And and right now, as of this taping, like most pundits are projecting Biden wins by 200,000 votes in Pennsylvania, and Trump won by 45,000 votes four years ago. So I mean, I don't I don't think you can register it. Okay, two more questions here. Aaron Larson asks, is there a compromise version of the Green New Deal? She says, what what might this look like? How do we think about state led versus federal led opportunities? I mean, in in this world where we have um, a, a Biden presidency, a Republican-held Senate, like, does the Green New Deal live on in any fashion, or is it just piecemeal stuff like we've been doing for decades? I don't think that Mitch McConnell will ever do a Green New Deal. That doesn't mean he won't. we won't get some things done, but I just think that he used that to pummel Democrats, and I just don't think yeah. it's something we're going to see. And we saw some Democrats who are in very climate-impacted districts in Florida lose their races because of this specter of a Green New Deal linked to socialism and communism and everything else. So I just think um, the Republicans aren't going to do it. Well, in New Mexico as well, right? I think um, I, I so I would take the other side of this. I, in general, think that you're right that the words Green New Deal are probably problematic. But remember, because of COVID, there are huge budget shortfalls in electric utility budgets. And they want money from the federal government to fill those. It is fairly straightforward in my mind to say, if you want the federal government to give the electric utility industry money to pay for some of those shortfalls that they received and to be able to raise some of those debts from consumers, then you will also accept a 10Xing or a 100Xing of the weatherization budget, and you're gonna weatherize 12 million homes. And that creates a lot of jobs. And so you can not you can 
you know, not refer it to the Green New Deal. But at the end of the day, it's kind of a Green New Deal. Final question from a listener. This is from John Westerman. Is the Trump damage beyond repair? Well, it's certainly hard to see how Biden does anything but fix the damage for months on end, right? I mean, you're talking about a years. A decimation. Well, I don't know about years, but like there's a decimation of um, the workforce in the federal government, which has to be fixed. And I think Biden and the Democrats know where to find those people. It takes time to put those people in place. On the EPA side, I'm not as plussed about a lot of the regulations that went away. So, I mean, it's sort of, let me put that out there. So I don't, like, I think in general, the environmentalists went too far with EPA anyway. Um, Meaning exercising EPA's authority. Meaning that they should actually fight these battles at the local level, which is what they did in the 70s and 80s, and not get lazy like they did in the 2000s by trying to kill everything at the federal level. Like, there's lots of projects you can kill at the local level. It just takes more work. And oh, by the way, that work provides more enduring support for your issues than, you know, using legal technicalities at the EPA level. Well, I, I don't think we really need to get too deep into this. But the reason why we shut down so many coal plants is because of the efforts of like the, the Beyond Coal campaign. So it's totally. not like all environmentalists just put their efforts into EPA. We did have a lot of local state by state initiatives that were dictated by environmental groups. Yeah, I agree. That was oh, that right. was a shining spot in an otherwise blemished record. <laughs> Catherine, uh, anything on the damage that Trump has done to agencies? I mean, what it, will it take to reverse it? Uh, like, is this a months-long affair? Is this a years-long affair in terms of st- appropriately staffing and reviewing what Trump has done to dismantle the mission of agencies? I think it really depends on the agency. I think State Department has probably endured the most damage and EPA. DOE, I think you could put in new political appointees and the folks that have been running the programs would chug along, would get money out the door faster. I mean, they continue to get funded pretty in a pretty healthy way. The issue is whether you're funding more research into coal and other fossil fuels or whether you're doing more in renewables. And I think that uh, DOE's, you know, the focus would change, um, but there's less damage to recover from there. Okay, I think that rounds out the national picture for now. We'll turn to some local races in a minute. But first, a quick word about our supporters of this show. We're brought to you by Honeywell. The next generation of smart electric grid technology is here. Honeywell has partnered with leading cellular carriers to integrate 5G and LTE network technologies into its connected energy solutions for smarter homes, buildings, cities, and mission-critical industries. Honeywell is using cellular IoT infrastructure to help utilities develop high-speed, reliable, and secure networks. Its scalable and customizable platform makes it easy for utilities to build grid intelligence, improve the customer experience, and find new opportunities for efficiency and automation. Honeywell Smart Energy is delivering the future of utility connectivity. You can learn more at smartenergy.honeywell.com. We're also brought to you by Vertzilla. The Path to 100% is a group of thought leaders and industry experts working together to identify the fastest, most cost-effective, and most reliable ways to decarbonize, not just city by city, but across entire states and nations. This is more than just raising awareness. It's also about discussing solutions and developing realistic approaches to building a future that runs on 100% renewable electricity. 
That means addressing economic, scientific, and political challenges that vary around the world. And so the path to 100% is not a one-size-fits-all blueprint. It aims to provide information that can help each nation, state, and community customize its own path to 100%. To learn more and download the Pathway to 100% paper, visit pathto100.org. Let's turn to some of the local races that we were following in the lead up to the election um, and get an update on what you were following or any other surprises that came up. Uh, Catherine, why don't you start? Okay, a couple that I was following. One is Eric Skermetta from Louisiana Public Service Commission. There will be a runoff. He got 31% of the vote, and he will face uh, a New Orleans lawyer, Alan H. Bourne Jr., who's a Democrat, who got 25% of the vote. I think he has a hard time catching up because it was divided among Republicans. Um, But Eric Skermetta, this would be his third and final six-year term. And for people who live in Louisiana... This guy can change your pocketbook far more significantly than any member of Congress. I mean, they have control over billions of dollars that directly impact consumers. So I think people don't pay enough attention to regulatory races, and that yet they can have the most dramatic impact on people's livelihoods. And I just hope people pay attention to that runoff race. The other race I was following was Dr. Cameron Webb versus Bob Good in Virginia. And that was a tough one. Um, Webb lost. Um, Bob Good was the athletic director or deputy athletic director at Liberty University, which was also his alma mater. It's a very conservative school. It's in Lynchburg, Virginia, where I'm from. And those folks know how to organize. They organized dozens and dozens of buses to come up during all the Amy Conant Barrett hearings. They just they get their people out to vote. And so I'm not really surprised about that. But I was glad to see a really good candidate like Dr. Cameron Webb out there. And I I think we'll continue to see more in the Commonwealth. What's up with this New Mexico decision to slash commissioners from five to three? I saw a few people ask about this. What are the implications of cutting down the number of energy regulatory commissioners in the state. And they're also now going to be appointed by the governor. What's that change all about? And does does it materially impact how things work in a state like New Mexico? Yeah, what the way I interpreted it is that you take a lot of the politics out of it because if you have five that are elected, then they all have to run races and the appointments are supposed to be much more independently determined. So my sense was that it was going to take some of the politics out of the commission, which could be really helpful. Yeah. Uh, what about the transportation initiatives that you were following, Catherine? I know that that was on your list in the lead up to the election. Yeah, really interesting because all these ballot initiatives use really different tools to try to raise money f- to fund the initiatives. You know, some of them are traditional bonds that you do in municipalities and counties and Usually a county like that I live in, Arlington, we always pass all of our bonds so we can build more parks and schools and things like that. But some of these are property taxes, sales taxes, payroll taxes, and the one in Portland, Oregon, which was um, a payroll tax to fund infrastructure and transportation projects that were very focused on environmental justice, failed a lot in part because corporates fought it. They don't want a payroll tax, and they came out strongly against it, and that failed. But in Austin, Proposition A, which was going to raise $7.1 billion through property taxes for urban rail, a tunnel under the city, all these really interesting projects, that passed. 
And then in Georgia, some of the city sales tax increases to fund bike paths and better roads. In Denver, a ballot measure 2A passed, which would raise sales tax to the tune of about $40 million a year to fund climate-related and greenhouse gas reductions projects. What I find interesting about all of these is that people are terrified if they're told, for example, Joe Biden's going to raise your taxes because people have a really hard time connecting federal tax revenue with what's happening locally. But it seems like people don't mind having their sales and property taxes increased to do things that will have a local impact that's very tangible and that they can see what will happen with. So I found that really interesting in some of these races. Jigger, what were you following and how did it play out? Yeah, I mean, I was following the race that uh, Beth Doglio was running in Washington State. She ended up losing um, to her uh, challenger, um, who was also a Democrat. Um, but Beth was a real climate champion, so we lost a climate champion there. I think um, in terms of the Uber and Lyft, uh, you know, backed state ballot measure, you know, they ended up, um, you know, winning there, which I thought was a big deal. I do think that like part of this struggle between the uh, sort of people who ride Uber and Lyft and people who drive Uber and Lyft is real. And I don't quite understand how to process it, but I thought like it's going to actually have big implications for a lot of infrastructure and climate related things that we do over time. Hmm, how so? So just to explain, this was a proposition that would have made contractors for gig companies, companies like Uber and Lyft and Postmates, etc., into people employees that could get benefits. So I don't understand the crossover. How does this have implications for climate and energy? So the problem in general is like Uber and Lyft actually believe that they're an app company, right? And as an app company, right, they're saying, why do we have to deal with electric vehicles? Why do we have to deal with you know, employing all these people, we don't actually even know how to employ all these people and give them benefits, etc. And, you know, they spent a lot of money in California to, to make sure that these folks were not viewed as employees. And I think that when you think about how these project finance deals work, remember, Uber and Lyft are not creditworthy companies. In fact, most credit agencies think that they're on the credit watch list for going bankrupt, right? And so, so when you think about you know, the California Resources Board saying you must use electric vehicles. The actual ecosystem that is used to support uh, drivers with weekly rentals or monthly rentals or all that stuff looks vastly different if the driver is responsible for renting the vehicle versus Uber and Lyft responsible for renting the vehicle. And I think I think that the nuances around that are super difficult, I think, for a lot of the organizers to understand. But now that the drivers are not employees, it's actually really easy to set up the electric vehicle mandate in California. Whereas if they were going to be employees, then it would have been the responsibility of Uber and Lyft, which is super hard to see how that would happen because Uber and Lyft just are such poor credit quality. I'm so confused. So it actually has positive implications? I thought you said it, it, had does. Negative, it has negative implications. Did I? Well, it's positive for project finance, right? It's positive because people know how to rent vehicles to individual drivers, right? That's based on FICO score, based on people just prepaying with their credit card. People don't know how to you know, bring a billion, $2 billion with electric vehicles to employees of 
a company like Uber and Lyft that, you know, like is responsible for the vehicles for its employees, right? I mean, if you're, um, if, if you're mandating it and they're employees, you have to provide it. But Uber and Lyft have really terrible credit ratings, right? And so their interest rates would, been, would have been like at 12 or 14%. Um, and so it was actually breaking the model. It's one of the things that's been holding up CARB is that CARB is like, we don't actually know how to put this in place without breaking Uber and Lyft's model. This is way beyond my depth here. <laughs> it's, but it's, but it's what happens in general, right? Industrial companies are the exact same thing. So we can have this conversation later about decarbonizing cement and steel. Mo- ma- many of those companies are bankrupt as well, right? Or really financially not well off, right? And so putting mandates on them and then forcing them to spend a bunch of money on their own balance sheet to clean themselves up is really difficult. Hmm. What else? What any other local races that you were watching that played out in the way you expected or didn't expect? Well, I was also watching the Amendment 5 in Louisiana, which was uh, thumping. I think it was like 66% of Louisiana. Can you just uh, remind us what it is? That was where um, the large LNG facility in uh, Cameron LNG in Louisiana has already gotten 10 years of property tax breaks, and they wanted to extend those permanently, which would have basically you know, taken $220 million worth of property taxes per year out of the system. Um, you know, and solar and wind folks benefit from 10-year property tax abatements all the time. But once the 10 years are up, you got to pay the property taxes. Um, and Cameron LNG wanted to break the system. And I think for Louisiana voters to say, ah, actually, you got to pay your fair share, I think is a big, um, a big deal. Uh, the races and issues that I mentioned in the last episode were ballot issue one in Columbus, Ohio, which would allow the city to set up a community choice aggregation like model and negotiate better renewable energy rates with the local utility that did pass uh, the Texas Railroad Commission race went to Republican Jim Wright. He was favored in that race, but because of the millions of dollars that were dumped in in favor of Democrat Krista Castaneda, there was um, an expectation that she might do well, but she did not. And so that means that we have a Texas Railroad Commission that will still probably be hesitant to regulate methane emissions or do anything to clean up upstream oil and gas in the state further. Let's see. What else? Uh, any other local races we should mention? Well, the the other one that we've been following is Cameron Ramirez in uh, Ventura County. And, uh, you know, she ran her entire uh, race on climate uh, to unseat uh, mayor and is leading in the polls. So the, the sitting mayor um, refuses to concede, uh, Tim Flynn, but but it'll be interesting. I mean, I think the fact that candidates are now explicitly running on climate and winning in some of these areas matters. There are a couple of things that surprised me. Um, one was that Boulder voted for a 20-year franchise agreement with Excel, which would kind of pause their municipality move. I don't... Oh, I mean, this is so fascinating. Their municipalization move. And I am not sure what, what that means and if you all know anything more about that, but I was sort of surprised to read that. I don't, but I saw the press release come out. And so obviously Boulder has been trying for a long time to municipalize and cut itself off from Excel. Uh, and they did that in 2018. Was that 2018? Jigger, do you remember the year that Boulder? It was before that. It was closer to 2014, 2015. And they've been having this fight for 
five years, right? Ruben Munger and a lot of those folks in Boulder have been funding this fight for a long time. I mean, I think this vote basically means that Boulder is fatigued. And the fact that, you know, Excel has promised them 100% clean energy, they're like, ah, let's just do it through Excel. Like this whole like standing up a municipal utility is too hard. Well, that's actually what I was going to ask. So utilities like Excel, a lot of these uh, mega US utilities have come out with these net zero emissions targets. They've got really ambitious renewable energy goals. And all of a sudden, a lot of entities, either companies or municipalities that might want to go procure renewable energy on their own are seeing the utility now doing this in a pretty aggressive way. So is this a sign that the utilities have stepped up enough so that the push toward municipalization that we were talking about a couple years ago uh, may not really play out? Well, another one happened, which was Memphis was going to break off from TVA um, because TVA is not clean enough. And Memphis is their biggest load center. So that was uh, hugely important to TVA. And TVA has promised them all kinds of clean energy, too. So we'll see. It may put cities um, that have a lot of load in the power position to try to make some demands. Yeah, I'd say that my hot take on this stuff is that the utility companies, um, because of their monopoly franchise, have the ability to wear people down. And I think that's what's occurred in Boulder, uh, potentially in Memphis. But I, I I, don't think that's true in terms of what's good for populations, right? So when you think about the CCA movement in California or the you know CCA movement that's moving forward in New York, um, in general, um, the, the hope here is not the clean energy. That's the easy part now, right? Doing virtual power purchase agreements or corporate power purchase agreements. I mean, you know, it's funny to say in 2020, but it is the easy part now. The hard part is helping people actually get energy efficiency done in their homes and figuring out how to help them move to electric vehicles and figuring out how to help them electrify everything. And I don't think all these sort of promises of 100% clean energy mean that Excel Energy or TVA is going to help with that. So is that a wrap on the local stuff? Actually, there's one more race I wanted to bring up, and that is Colin Peterson, who is the chair of the House of Representatives Agriculture Committee. It's an incredibly important committee. He has been representing rural Minnesota for 30 years. He lost his race. That was a really big deal. I'm not sure who's going to end up uh, running the Ag Committee at this point, but that was something that really stood out to me. Yeah, but what does the Ag Committee do? Why, Why does that matter for our issues? Farmers. (laughs) Farmers. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it's big because a lot of our solar and wind development is in rural communities. So that has a pretty big impact and on ethanol and other types of fuels. Yeah. I mean, also, if you want to sequester carbon in the soil, a lot of that mm-hmm. stuff comes through the ag bill. I mean, Colin Peterson's an interesting person. I mean, he he's sort of like the Connie Morella, if people remember Connie Morella, of like democratic politics. His his district had been going, I think it was like plus seven Republican. And he just kept winning um, because people liked him and thought he delivered for the district. And I think, you know, just the nature of how partisan this race got, like he just couldn't get enough people to split their ballot um, between Trump and him. So let's go to the international stage now. The U.S. has officially withdrawn from the Paris Climate Accord. That was announced in 2017, but it took hold officially on Election Day. Catherine, what happens next? 
Yes, Biden has promised that if he is in the White House in about 77 days, he would say we could get back in. And he could do that. But there just there's a little more complication to that uh, than that may give you. So when the U.S. signed onto Paris, um, and remember, all these commitments were they were voluntary. We got to choose what we would commit to. And yet we're held to those because we chose them. And our commitment was to reduce from 2005 levels 26 to 28 percent by 2025. That was our commitment. And by as of last year, we had only reduced by 12 percent. So we are not right now in compliance with our own commitments. And next year, 2021, when in November, when there's the next meeting in Glasgow, that is when countries have to then ramp up their commitments to 2030 and this ratcheting up. Not only are we not in compliance right now, but we would have to then try to figure out how to ratchet up by 2030. The good news is that the We Are Still In movement, which is 4,000 cities, states, tribal nations, faith groups, businesses, universities, have all committed enough that could get us to 37% reduction by 2030. But I think it will be incumbent on the Biden administration to work really closely with those groups, because you can't get a big climate bill done in Congress. He'll use every administrative tool he can, but he's going to have to prove when he goes in to Glasgow for those negotiations that he can make these commitments by 2030 or he will not be considered a party. Hmm. So it's not as simple as Joe Biden just handing over a piece of paper saying, hi, we're still we're back in. Right. You have to prove it. You have to prove that you have a plan to be in good standing. Well, so we're still waiting on election results. Um, who knows how the picture will have changed after we publish this show. But how are we all feeling Thursday morning on balance, given the state of all these races? Jigger? I feel great. I mean, I think we're in a situation where Biden's going to be the next president and the U.S. Congress is going to be as dysfunctional as it's been forever. And I don't know that I was expecting anything different. I do think that, you know, the actions at the state level, um, you know, with Arizona's recent, um, you know, announcement of 100% clean energy, 80% of people that live in the West are now covered under 100% clean energy mandates. And so, like, I think that we're actually... Great. I think that the the challenge, honestly, has been a failure of national leadership to sort of, you know, frame a lot of these issues, which I think we're going to be able to do much better. And then executive action around, you know, federal procurement, which I think we'll be able to do much better. Remember, there's like a $6.3 billion procurement that still hasn't been awarded to convert all of the United States Postal Service vehicles to electric vehicles. So I think there's a lot of things that we're going to be able to get done now that clean energy is cost effective um, at the federal government level. And I, I'm, I'm excited. Catherine, how are you feeling on balance? Yeah. First of all, did y'all know Kanye West got over 61,000 votes for president? Like, how many relatives can you have? I'm surprised it's that low, actually. Have you not seen uh, the Kardashians? I thought it would have been higher than that, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Even Michael Schellenberger got more votes than that for the governor's race in <laughs> California. Um, anyway, yes, I feel I haven't like let myself feel really happy yet. But I do know that as someone who works in public policy on clean energy, I'm gonna have a lot of work to do. I think they're gonna be huge opportunities. I think there's gonna be an enormous amount of creativity required, but I think we're gonna be able to get some stuff done. Mm. 
I don't know how I'm feeling yet. I know that I'm going to march over to Oregon, get my hands on some of that legal psilocybin, and go into the woods for a couple of weeks and have a vision quest. That's what I need right about now. (laughs) Well, folks, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week. Maybe we'll have an early show, depending on how things shake out. But um, we appreciate you sending in your questions and listening to us work through this stuff. So we'll see what happens. But things are looking pretty good for our issues, and we'll continue to dig in. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw are my co-hosts. We are a production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. You can follow us everywhere on social media, all of us, and uh, find us anywhere you get podcasts. And do us a favor and give us a rating and review while you're there poking around on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks a lot for listening. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy.